Welcome to Trade Finance Talks, a podcast from Trade Finance Global. During this series, we'll be hearing from global experts, as well as learning about the latest trends, technology and insights in the world of international trade and receivables finance. Episode 18. And then coming on to your main question, which is the credit insurance, that is extremely significant in in terms of financing tools. The banks get their own policy. So for example, to cover the non-payment risk of the person they're lending to. In that scenario, the bank will be paying for its own policy. It will have sole responsibility to discharge the obligations under that policy. And it can also control the making of the claim. I'm Nivesh Patel, editor at Trade Finance Global. Last week, we spoke to an exporter, Imran Arsha from Eventuri, who exports 80% of his UK manufactured car products to luxury car manufacturers around the world. For exporters doing trade internationally, most of this is done on open account terms, meaning payment is often accepted after the buyer has received the goods. Today, we're talking about the what-ifs. What if the buyer becomes insolvent during the period the goods are being made or dispatched? What if there's a disagreement over the contracts? What if the goods get damaged during shipment or whilst on the cargo ship? What if there's a disagreement about who pays for customs, for taxes and tariffs? It's often usual to cover against non-payment or other unforeseen events, but what actually is credit insurance? We hear a lot about credit insurance in the trade finance space, often cloaked with terms such as Basel III and IV regulation, capital risk mitigation, indemnity, and obligor ratings. So we've decided to talk to the experts about what credit insurance is, how it impacts trade, and how it benefits exporters, corporates, and banks. Today, I'm joined by two familiar faces from Sullivan, Marianne Boyle, who looks after UK insurance and dispute practice, and managing associate Hannah Fern from Sullivan. Ladies, thank you for joining me on Trade Finance Talks today. In no more than 30 seconds, and Marianne, starting with you, please tell us your elevator pitch. Who are you and what do you do at Sullivan, specifically in relation to the use of insurance and other forms of risk mitigation techniques within trade finance? I'm partner in the London office of Sullivan and Worcester. I head up the UK insurance and dispute resolution practice. I work closely with our award-winning trade and export finance team and with the US-based disputes team, offering advice on insurance, on risk management, and on commercial dispute resolution. And Hannah, what about you? I am a managing associate in the London team at Sullivan. I work within the trade finance team, advising on a broad range of trade finance structures and instruments. I have a particular interest and focus on different types of risk distribution techniques, such as credit insurance, risk participations and guarantees, and the related regulatory requirements to achieve capital relief for those types of instruments. I was also closely involved in the last 18 months with updating the template BAFT master participation agreement. Thank you very much. Marion, how significant a role does credit insurance cover play within trade finance? Credit insurance specifically, very significant, but I think it's probably worth broadening that out a little bit to cover the other types of insurance that are significant in trade. So for asset-based finance, it's usual for the lender to require the risk of loss or damage to the assets to be insured. So that's the loss or physical damage to the goods concerned. It's also important because these goods are often in transit, those transit risks are also covered off. And that's something which the finances are likely to require. 
And then in borrowing base or warehouse financing, where the lending is often on a revolving basis against the volume of goods in the warehouse. So they're in the warehouse awaiting shipment. So you have the, the right quantity of goods to meet a, a certain contract. Then again, it's very important that not only the physical risk is covered off, but also the collateral manager under whose care those goods are being stored. Their professional indemnity cover is also vital to the security of this package. And in certain jurisdictions, it would be normal to also expect there to be some sort of crime or fidelity policy to cover off the risk that employees or those involved in the uh, transportation of the goods or in the storage of the goods might be tempted to take some valuable goods and replace them with something with less valuable that amounts to the same weight but actually isn't worth it. And then coming on to your main question, which is the credit insurance, that is extremely significant. In, in terms of financing tools. The risk mitigation that insurers, the banks will want to take includes making sure that the non-payment risk is covered off. So traditionally, that used to take the form of credit insurance. And often this would be credit insurance taken by the bank's customer on a revolving basis. So it would be for a whole book of business that a bank's customer had, and it would cover certain limits for certain counterparties or obligors and certain um, uh, country limits. And that would be on a, a whole book basis. But significantly, that sort of cover has moved on in our experience so that banks now take out their own credit insurance. For some risks, that would be only political risk. But for many, it's a comprehensive non-payment. And the significant difference between those two types of cover is that the political risk cover would only cover you for country risks, so expropriation of the assets or some political act that destroyed the, the supply chain in some way. Whereas non-payment covers the risk of non-payment by the obligor for any reason. And again, that's significant because under the old political risk form of policy, the borrower or the insured had to prove what caused the loss and that it fell within specific defined political risks. Whereas under our comprehensive non-payment, all the insured has to show is that they haven't been paid. They don't have to say why they haven't been paid. They've only got to prove the fact of non-payment. And that makes it very valuable. Thank you. Thank you, Marion. And actually, I guess we've got to start thinking about more creative solutions and also all of the different types of risks and how insurance can play in with those individual parts there. So let's talk more about the actual structures and, and the insurance arrangements. And Hannah, I'm going to come to you now. How do banks and borrowers structure the insurance arrangements when they both have an interest in the physical asset or commodity or the risk of a non-payment by the offtake? So there are various ways you can structure um, your insurance cover in those uh, different types of scenarios. And the rights of the bank can vary considerably depending on how you structure it. So it's going to be a case of looking for a particular structure, what it is that the bank is trying to achieve. One option is, of course, the banks get their own policy. So, for example, to cover the non-payment risk of the person they're lending to. In that scenario, the bank will be paying for its own policy. It will have sole responsibility to discharge the obligations under that policy. And it can also control the making of the claim. That option is that you, the bank can negotiate their own wording and they may be able to leverage uh, relationships with brokers and underwriters to get the best possible cover. Another option is co-assurance. So this might be where the borrower and the bank both insured under a policy um, in respect of, for example, non-payment by a third party in the structure such as a receivables debtor. From a legal perspective, co-assurance is intended to be two separate policies on the same term. So both the bank and the borrower are separately insured for their own risk of loss. So in that scenario, the bank is still going to be liable to perform obligations under the policy. 
but the borrower's act or failure to act won't prejudice the bank's rights, which is why in some circumstances the bank will be looking for that co-assurance because it wants to make sure that if the bank, if the borrower fails to perform, that it will still get paid. The reality is, though, that that's quite difficult to achieve and it involves very careful drafting to make sure that actually the policies do operate separately and that the bank does have that independent um, cover. One another structure we often see in trade finance is loss payee status. So this is where perhaps the borrower has a policy covering the loss of a cargo that the bank is financing and the bank wants to be noted as loss payee on that policy. A loss payee status gives the bank the right to receive payment of the proceeds of any claim under the policy, but they don't have any liability under the policy to pay any premium or comply with any policy terms. But that does mean that they are relying on the borrower to perform. So the borrower must pay its premium, it must perform Um, its obligations under the policy and it must make a claim in order for the bank to actually get paid. And of course, in that scenario, the bank's going to have very limited scope to negotiate the terms on which um, that policy is made because the bank's probably, the borrower probably already has that policy in place. We also see um, assignments of the proceeds together with the lost payee status. And this is to give the bank some extra protection. So it's a security interest over the proceeds of that claim. And therefore, in an insolvency situation, will hopefully give the bank some priority over the proceeds and when they're paid. Thank you. Marion, how has the role of insurance generally within trade finance changed over the last decade or so? And I guess for our listeners, both on bank and corporate side, how could they use it more effectively? In our experience, as I believe I alluded to earlier, banks are now using non-payment insurance policies much more frequently. The change away from insuring country risks separately has definitely moved on in the last 10 years. And now I very rarely see political risks policies, whereas I would say 10 years ago that was the norm. The other change worth commenting on, I think, is the wordings, the non-payment insurance wordings have definitely become much more user-friendly. So I think this is driven in part by the fact that in light of the the Basel Accords, banks have been able to use insurance as a credit risk mitigant, which I know is a question we're going to touch on a little later. And the most finances take the view that in order to be confident that their policy will be eligible for capital relief, that they want their lawyer to check the eligibility criteria and make sure it ticks the boxes. So that has meant that these policies have become much more lawyered than they were previously. And the result of that is that because the lawyers are striving to meet the strict uh, capital relief criteria, one of which is that the, the risk transfer must be effective, the policies have become much more clearly drafted. There's definitely been a removal of ambiguity and the old form of policy where there were a lot of words going over the same issues, but in slightly different ways, that has gradually petered out. So that in my experience of all the insurance products I come across in my insurance practice at Sullivan's, I would say that non-payment insurance policies are head and shoulders above the other products that are used in the trade market in terms of the sophistication and clarity of the wording and in terms of the the user friendliness. So an averagely intelligent people can read a policy and work out what the, the obligations of each party are. So how to use insurance more effectively? I think it comes down to a very simple message. The purchasers of insurance have got to understand what they're buying. So reading the policy is the single biggest important step I think you should take. All too often, I think people buy insurance products, put the policy in the drawer, and then only take it out if there's a claim. And the difficulty with that is twofold. Um, Firstly, it's undoubtedly going to be the case that non-payment insurance will contain obligations on the insured. 
So as part of the bargain in return for insurers agreeing to take the risk, they will expect certain things to be done or not to be done. And therefore, if if you haven't read the policy and the important stakeholders within your organisation aren't aware that certain things are prohibited or that certain things must be done in a certain way, you know, you're storing up trouble then for the future. And I think the second most important thing is to understand that while these are, of course, English law contracts, and we're all familiar with English law contracts, it's definitely the case that insurance operates within a very specialist and, and quite different legal landscape. It's subject to its own particular rules and not being aware of how those rules are going to be deployed against you in a claim situation can cause you to have a much more troublesome claims experience than would be ideal. So just in summary, read the policy and understand that these are um, specialist creatures and we can use them much more effectively if we're aware of those two considerations. So thanks, Marion. I think one thing that we found very interesting in the space is that standardization is a theme that crops up quite a lot, or rather the lack of standardization. Is that a problem? And, and how does that affect clients and customers? And then secondly, I guess, leading on from that, what advice would you give for your clients or for clients who are looking to find out more detail about the processes involved in order to be fully compliant with the policies that they are given so that in the case of an accident or non-payment, they meet the requirements of the insurer? Okay, so first question, is the lack of standardization a problem? I don't believe so. I know there has been a move to towards having more standardization. The barriers to that, I think, are that lots of banks have developed their own product, their own wording, which they're very comfortable with, which suits them and suits the particular sorts of deals that they want to finance. And it's very difficult for them to give up those hard hard wins, their familiarity with the product, to move to something standardized unless they're going to be sure that that standard is at least as good as what they're giving up. And the other barrier to standardization is that inevitably insurance is a relationship Insurers are more comfortable with financial institutions that they've got a track record with, they know their processes, they know that the bank is going to treat an insured risk in exactly the same way as they would treat an uninsured risk, so that there's no double standard being applied. And new entrants to the market who don't have that track record with insurers are obviously not going to, on their first foray into purchasing non-payment insurance, are obviously not going to get the same terms as a sophisticated user would get, who's been around the clock with insurers, who's proved that they know how to handle claims properly, who's proved that they understand their obligations under the policy and discharge them properly. So having a standardised product is likely to mean that we reduce the coverage to the lowest common denominator that would be offered to any new financier entering the market, which is not, in my view, going to meet the needs and requirements of the more sophisticated users. I think for your second question, we're probably going to touch on this in more detail when we come to discuss claims. But um, knowing what you're obliged to do under the policy means that you are undoubtedly going to end up with a better result in your claim. And if you don't understand when you first read the policy what your obligations are, then it's vital, I think, that you go and get specialist advice on this. First port, of course, should be your broker. Again, I'm going to touch on on the role of brokers um, when we come to discuss claims in more detail, but brokers were a really invaluable source of knowledge information regarding these markets. And then secondly, get specialist legal advice. If if a bank, for example, has a complicated tax issue, they don't go and use their their straightforward up and down vanilla financing partner at their firm to give them advice. They go and get specialist tax advice. And it's the same with insurance. They operate in a, a specialist legal 
landscape and people giving advice should be aware of what that specialist legal landscape should be. Otherwise, it's quite possible to misinterpret things that are very significant. Hannah, what do you think are the core benefits that insurance and other forms of risk mitigation techniques can offer trade of receivables finance? And how is Sullivan working with clients to maximise some of those benefits? I mean, one of the key benefits of getting, for example, non-payment insurance is that you have that third-party credit support. So different types of risk mitigation, like credit insurance, risk participations between banks, guarantees such as those given by um, different multilaterals, they all have a very similar economic effect. Essentially, you have a third party who is independent of your, your underlying borrower, agreeing that they will make payment in the case that the underlying borrower defaults. So that gives you the, the risk transfer to that third party and that can help banks provide providing finance for example if they have internal obligor limits internal country limits entering into these types of risk transfer agreements can help them provide more finance to their clients while still being covered internally Another big point is the capital relief point that has been mentioned so we have um, the Basel 3 standards and in the EU we have the capital um requirements regulation, which has implemented those standards, that sets out the very detailed requirements that these types of instruments have to satisfy. But if you can meet those requirements, then you can get better capital treatment for your exposure. And that can really increase the appetite that banks have to finance trade finance transactions because essentially makes that financing more cost effective for them. In terms of our role as lawyers, we're working with the clients really just to achieve the best possible wording. And that can include looking just generally at the obligations under the policy and making sure they have the best cover, but also looking at those CRR requirements and making sure that those requirements are met. And that can involve also issuing legal opinions to satisfy the regulatory requirement to demonstrate those points have been met. With trade finance in particular, there are so many different structures and different ways of financing that it's really important to make sure the policy is fit for purpose. And that can involve tailoring the wording to make sure it really suits the transaction. Also, as lawyers, we, you know, we're advising on those policy obligations, how to minimise the risk of disputes down the line if there is a claim. And for some clients, as Marion was saying, around having that wording agreed with their insurers, if you have a pipeline of lots of different trade finance transactions, perhaps you know smaller ticket transactions, things like letters of credit and things like that, helping a client agree that template wording with their broker or their panel of insurers can really streamline that process of putting in place that cover on an ongoing basis for those different types of trade finance risk as they arise. Thanks, Hannah. So, Mariam, back to you. What is the usual procedure that is followed when insurance claims are made? So, assuming that we're talking here about a claim under a non-payment insurance policy, it would be very usual for those policies to contain policy notification provisions. So, these are insurers saying that in the circumstances where a loss might be likely, they want to be notified before a claim arises. So, in keeping with my earlier theme of read the policy and know your obligations, first thing is to make sure you understand what your notification obligations are. They might kick in before a claim arises. They might kick in at a much earlier stage than you'd anticipate. And it's clearly important that you comply with those because that's the bargain that was struck with insurers and that's the conduct that they, they're expecting. So... It's likely, if it's a non-payment policy, particularly one of the sophisticated products that we've been discussing, there will be a proof of loss form appended to the policy, which is the proof of loss form that insurers will want the insured to complete. It's usually very simple and straightforward, just sets out the amount of the loss, what steps might have been taken so far to try and recover it. It's likely, given the notification 
procedure that I mentioned earlier, that insurers will be well aware that a loss might be um, in the pipeline because of the earlier notification. For claims of significant value, they are likely to be referred by insurers to a loss adjuster. Loss adjuster's role is to investigate the claim. They're looking at quantum, but they're looking more widely too. So insured should be aware that they do have an obligation to check that the policy falls within the ambit of the cover. They will be looking to see whether any of the risks that are excluded have some bearing on the loss because they'll need to report that to insurers. So they'll be looking in the round at the claim and likely to be asking quite a few questions in their information gathering process. So their job is to confirm to the insurers that the claim is a valid one, it falls within the scope of cover and that the quantum is the right quantum. It hasn't been exaggerated, there's nothing being added in that's not covered, etc. And that generally takes place during what's called the waiting period. These non-payment policies generally contain a period of time, often 180 days or thereabouts, can be shorter for less complicated instruments, during which the parties exchange information about the claims, insurers ask questions, the insured provides it. And then at the end of that process, the insurers should be able to reach their claims determination, which is hopefully the positive, yes, your claim is covered, but occasionally it's your claim falls within certain exclusions, or we believe that there might be some problem with the conduct of the insured during the period of the policy. And then there'll be a, be a debate, which we'll probably touch on a little more when we come to discuss insurance claims. What top, uh, let's say, five tips would you offer our listeners if they did become involved in an insurance claim? Okay, I, th- I don't think you'll be surprised to hear my first one is read the policy. If you haven't already read it, you've got to read it because you need a clear understanding of what your obligations are in this claim scenario. So as I've mentioned, there's likely to be notification provisions in the policy. So hopefully you've, you've complied with those. It's a good time before you make the claim to check that the policy warranties and the the CPs to insurers liability, by which I mean the conditions precedent that insurers have said have to be fulfilled before you're able to make a claim or have been fulfilled and that you've got clear track record on that. I think it's also important to make sure that all the relevant stakeholders in your organisation are aware that a claim is being made on the policy and are aware that the policy will contain terms that prohibit certain conduct or that insist that insurers be consulted before certain steps are taken. So, for example, in a claim scenario, it wouldn't be unusual for the financier to be reaching out to the obligor and to try and explore ways to make sure the debt is paid, reach some sort of accommodation with the obligor. It's really important that you know what what your policy requires of you because it is likely that these policies will contain an obligation on the insured to cooperate with insurers and to consult with them regarding any claim circumstance. These vary from policy to policy, so absolutely no substitute for reading your wording and understanding what your obligations are. And if when you read the wording, you don't know what your obligations are, then you should be consulting your broker. And if you're not getting a satisfactory answer, you should be getting specialist legal advice. Part of understanding your policy is understanding that insurers, if they pay the claim, will have rights of subrogation. And I'm going to touch on that in response to one of my other top five tips. So bottom line is number one, no substitute for reading the policy. Second top tip, work with your broker. As I mentioned earlier, Sophisticated brokers in this market are an absolute font of knowledge. They understand their markets. They understand the quirks that particular underwriters might have. We're all humans. It's a people business. We all know that our um, our exposure to certain events, so to difficult claims, might have informed the way a particular underwriter views claims. And he might want things done in a certain way or might be very particular about some aspect of the risk that you don't think is important, but which his experience has caused him to be concerned about. So just go with that. 
Um, thirdly, don't be alarmed if insurers say they're investigating the claim but under a reservation of rights. This is perfectly standard. It doesn't indicate anything negative. Um, what insurers are trying to do is to make sure that they're able to investigate, as of course is reasonable that they should do, to make sure the claim is covered without them, by some conduct on their part, giving the insured the opportunity to say that insurers have in some way waived a right. So in extreme circumstances, for example, a right to avoid the policy because of non-disclosure or misrep by the insured. And so insurers in putting in place these reservations are just protecting their position and there should be um, no concern about that happening. It's, it's fairly standard. Fourth tip, be cooperative. The policy will probably require your cooperation anyway, but even if it doesn't, insurers are there to, to pay a claim, but only valid claims. So it's quite reasonable that they want information. Make sure when you give them information, all your responses are 100% accurate. Um, I can't overemphasize how scrupulous we need to be when giving answers to questions. It's very easy with the passage of time for us to uh, misremember certain events or the sequence of events. If it's important to insurers, don't say, I think X, Y, Z happened in this order. Go and check or say, let me check and I'll get back to you. There, it's important also to make sure that when you are dealing with loss adjusters, they are acting for insurers. So while you're being scrupulously honest, obviously be alert as well. Loss adjusters have a duty to check whether CPs have been fulfilled, whether warranties have been complied with. They'll have a duty to check this. Be alert to that. And then lastly, remember if your claim's paid, that's not the end of the obligation that, you, that you're under. There will be rights of subrogation that insurers have, and the policy will is likely to require your cooperation in assisting insurers with those rights of subrogation. Subrogation is simply the act of insurers stepping into your shoes and using your name to pursue any remedies that you might have to diminish the loss. And then if insurers don't pay the claim in, in, the, um, in the limited circumstances where that happens, because this non-payment product has a really good track record in claims being paid. But if insurers unreasonably delay, get some specialist advice. It's important, as I mentioned earlier, that you do go to someone who has insurance expertise because you can bet that insurers will be, con will be instructing specialist claims lawyers. So you need to have some parity of arms here. Thank you very much. That was very, very interesting and I think very useful advice there. And in particular, both of you mentioning all of the different insurance policies, not just non-payment, but also considering political, transit and crime-related insurance policies. I think also you both touched upon the benefits around capital relief under Bar 3 regulations. And both of you mentioned the importance of reading your policy and knowing your obligations. I don't think we can stress that enough. And finally, there was some really good clarity on the process, the reporting requirements, the role of the broker and actually recording the processes in, in a very scrupulous way. So thank you very much for, for joining us both today and we look forward to hearing from you soon. Thanks for listening to Trade Finance Talks. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts at tradefinanceglobal.com.